Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And in this episode, we're going to talk with Stanford professor and social psychologist Brian Lowry, a UCLA PhD, who is the Walter Kenneth Kilpatrick Professor of Organizational Behavior at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. He also serves as co-director of Stanford's Institute on Race and director of Stanford's Black Leaders Program. And his research has appeared in several scholarly journals and has been covered by the Washington Post, Psychology Today, Gentlemen's Quarterly, Quartz, and NPR's All Things Considered. He's also host of the podcast Know What You See and author of Selfless, The Social Creation of You. We're going to be talking with Professor Lowry about a range of topics centering around the self and relationships, individualism and identity, as well as how the social world and such factors as race and gender, community and nation affect and shape us. As ever, we welcome your questions, and I'd like to add also your comments. We invite both, and you can join us and join in. And welcome, Brian Lowry. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you, and congratulations on Selfless, the social creation of you. Let's begin by talking about self, uh, its functions, and what it means to you, and what you're trying to lay out for us here, at least in terms of the groundwork you've done. Self seems to provide us with both order and chaos, but the underlying argument in your book, which is not prescriptive, as you say on a number of occasions, is we're shaped by our social world. We're shaped by our relationships. We're the product of those relationships. Yeah, that's right. I think um, on one level, this is easy to understand. So as you move through your life, people have a sense of engaging differently if they're with their parents, with their kids, or at work, or in any other um, scenario where you're around a different group of people. So I think people have a sense of that. What I'm, in essence, pointing to is the strength of that effect. And there are times when we can't see the ways that the people around us, our environments are shaping us. And more than that, those environments don't only shape us, some core that emanates from inside us, but they actually construct that sense of self. A sense of self has often been thought of as something that can be unified or coherent. And yet, I've always believed the self is protean or there are multiple selves, which is a point you certainly bring to our attention. So unified self, uh, just a myth? Um, depends on what you mean. This is, you know, definitions are always tricky. Um, I think of it as masks all the way down. So people will think of wearing a mask in different situations as if there's some version of themselves that's unmasked. And, and what I say is masks all the way down and each one of them is real. So is that a unified self? You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't like to think in those terms. I think it's misleading, but certainly the idea of one genuine self, I think is wrong. I always think about Whitman. Do I contradict myself? Well, then I contradict myself. I'm large. I contain multitudes, which suggests mm -hmm. to me multiple selves. And you also mentioned Jekyll and Hyde, which is, by the way, I don't know how many people know this, but Robert Louis Stevenson actually had a dream that resulted in that novel. It's like the benzene ring in organic chemistry came from a dream. The idea, though, that there are multiple selves is almost implicit in that Jekyll Hyde idea that we're dual, good and evil. Yeah, yeah I, I prefer Wiltman. We contain multitudes. The duality is too small. We're bigger than that. So there's something that's uh, lovely about that, but also terrifying. Yeah, I'm with you on that. But also people seem to operate under the notion that there's a true self or a genuine self. Uh, my wife likes to say, you know, you may discover your true self is, we, we fill in the blank of 
profane word. <laughs> but this idea, again, is kind of a myth, isn't it? There's some kind of genuine self or true self underlying who we are. Yeah, this idea of authenticity or, or a genuine self, I think, is, again, comforting. And I think it's comforting because it situates us in the world. It, it lets us think of the world as stable and coherent. Um, and, and I think that's one function of the self. So it's not surprising to me that people are um, loathe to give up this idea that there's some real them, there's some real I in there somewhere. I get the the desire for that and the comfort of that. But people also like to believe that they're consistent, that they react in social situations in a consistent way. And no, it's sort of like Emerson said, it's inconsistent consistency or consistent inconsistency, something like that. Yeah, I mean, but it, you know what's funny about this? Would you want it any other way? If you're in a situation that calls for a certain behavior, I'd hope that I'd behave in a way that that situation demanded and that I didn't just come out with the automatic behavior response that I give in every other situation. I mean, we, and this is again, what's surprising about it. There's this um, tension, this desire to be coherent and a desire to move in the world in a, in a smooth, reasonable way. And those two things uh, don't really match up very well. Well, the self uh, can be compared to, and I think you make this comparison, sort of a funhouse and all these mirrors that change the way we see ourselves or the way we're seen. Uh, and yet, what is it? Is it is it ego? It's often identified as ego. Is it soul? Is it DNA? I mean, if you mm. try to define self, you run into, you, you do a brilliant job in many ways, but you really run into many selves trying to deal with the idea of self. Uh, yeah, indeed. I think of I think of DNA, obviously, let's put aside the actual science of it, but the lay conception of it is a modern day soul. That's how I think people are using it. I think, again, people are searching for some way to justify this belief in some ineffable thing that emanates from inside them that was, you know, breathed into them at their inception or, you know, was, I don't know, built by um, the building blocks of reality or something. And I just... I just don't think that's what the self is at all. And I think when we reflect on how we are engaging with the world, that's not what we mean at all. Well, the modern day soul is also sort of a lost soul in many people's minds. But I was also thinking about how, with respect to the self, I mean, Buddhism, nirvana is an extinction of the self. It tries to move toward, and people talk about being in love in ways that merge with another and they lose themselves. And all these ideas of loss of self are really pretty much a part of our thinking and our culture and what many aspire to. Yeah, you know, I, I um, people point out Buddhism, you know, people who are, um, who studied or understand, you know, some aspects of Buddhism bring that up quite a bit when I talk about the book. And honestly, like I didn't come to it from Buddhism, but I, and I people tell me about it. I think I, I come to the same, some of the same places, but from a different angle, more through the science than, than through um, philosophical or religious study in any case. Um, but this idea of nirvana, right? The people think of what we translate often in the West into heaven, as you said, is truly the extinction of self. That's what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think most people are terrified of it and strangely drawn to it. And the reason I think they're drawn to it is because it's the ultimate expression of freedom. I want to talk about that with you some more because that idea <laughs> of that tension between freedom and structure is really at the heart of your book. But let me also ask you about 
self-regard. I mean, Narcissus looking at his reflection or Donald Trump maybe looking in the mirror. Uh, what, what is it that makes you think some people almost oblivious to social interaction? All they care about is themselves. There's a whole continuum of that, really. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Honestly, I haven't I haven't spent much time thinking about kind of narcissism. Um, I mean, the first thing I would point to is that narcissists need other people maybe more than less narcissistic people do. So there's something interesting about that. So you point to a Donald Trump or uh, narcissist, the 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 namesake. Um, there's a desire for mirrors to reflect something back to them. Right. And the mirrors that they generally need are other people. Right. So with someone like a Donald Trump, he clearly relishes and needs the the attention. It's not even it doesn't necessarily have to even be positive, but the attention. And and maybe there's a a weaker sense of self, a need to constantly be confronted with a version of yourself from um people outside in a way that non-narcissists don't need. So that would be an inversion, I think, of how people normally think of narcissists. That's a very sensible way of looking at it, especially from a psychologist, which is your background point of view. I'm also um, wondering how conformity fits into all this, as you see it. Mm. Yeah, I think when you when we talk about, I talk about the self, I talk about it um, being constructed from relationships and interactions. But I also think of it in terms of broad networks of relationships and interactions. And you can think of culture as what we create in these broad networks of these communities of people. And that, I think, shapes how we interact with each other and it shapes what, how we understand the self, right? It, it, it provides a, let's call it like a, a group specific Rosetta Stone to translate the things that you see into social meaning. And it's the social meaning that gives um, heft or weight to the self. Do you agree, though, with David Reisman, you know, who wrote that landmark book, The Lonely Crowd, Harvard sociologist, talked about some people being interdirected and other people being other-directed toward other people? Is that division clear to you as a dualism? Or? Um, I don't really, I don't know. I'm sure there, there's a continuum of that, but I don't, I don't think of um, people as... Um, inhabiting two different categories in that way of inner directed and outer directed. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think in those terms. I think um, everyone both has to engage with the external, right? And to some extent um, that is internalized. Now, the, how much people understand or reflect on the internalization that might vary, but the, the bi-directional effect social interactions that is in this conversation i'm affecting you and you're affecting me now i can focus on one of those two directions but both are still happening right and and that maybe what i focus on varies but the reality of the you're affecting me and constructing who i am in this moment and i'm doing the same to you that's consistent across all interactions and i'd argue all human beings well, what is it you write in your book? Uh, author says, uh, take your little finger and wiggle it. And how many people just don't respond to that or do respond to that? I mean, it's a it's an exemplum of what can be affected by social relationships if you magnify it. Indeed, indeed. And when I do that, one of the things that I think is um, most interesting about it is even if you don't, you chose not to, and I affected the choice. Exactly. 
It's like I always say when people say I'm apolitical. If you're apolitical, you're taking a stance in being political, whether you like it or not. It's a negative <laughs> affirmation, right? 100%. There's no, there's, no way you, there's no way out. We're all in it. <laughs> We're all, yeah. And we've got some uh, questions and comments coming in, speaking about being in it, and I want to go to them and thank people for participating here. The first one's from David in Seattle who says, is there a benefit for self-image of being an athlete in high school and college? It's a pretty specific question, but your thoughts? Uh, uh, you know, I, I would I would translate that to any kind of identity that you have. Is there a benefit? Um, I guess it depends on both the the kind of culture you're in and how people perceived you. So if you're in an environment, and I've been in these environments where there's a lot of value attached to um, being athletic or being an athlete, and you were seen as a as a uh, exemplary athlete, then I'm sure, yeah, there will be benefits in the future. But I've also been in environments where people could care less about athletics, and in which case the effect is probably muted if it exists at all. Well, there's some environments where self-image is based on you know how much you're a gangster or how much mm -hmm. you're a bad person and can do destructive things. I mean, or that's where, how you know, or how much, how many books you read. I, yeah. I, I personally like that one. Yeah, I like your backdrop there, which speaks to that. And here's uh, Chris from Tempe, Arizona. Does the image of a closet filled with different costumes accumulated over a lifetime fit with your concept of multiple masks or multiple selves? We choose our outfits, discard some, outgrow some, and decide what to put on each day. I think, yes, except that there's an assumption that there's a you that's um, not in the costume. And I think if what you really think is that closet is you that's the that's how i would talk about it right there's no there's no, there's no you outside of those costumes well there's also the phrasing of being in the closet which means you're keeping your real self what you think of again as a real self whatever that may mean under lock and key or uh -huh. closed off yeah i think you know I, I sometimes people think that i'm saying there is no unique self i think that all selves are unique it's just that where does that uniqueness come from? And so there's the two things. One, in that metaphor, the I like the idea of the closet full of costumes and masks. It's what, what makes you unique is the particular costumes, the mask in your closet. But there's no you outside of that closet, and it's never completely closed. Thanks for these questions. Uh, thanks to Joseph with the next question. who's with us from Fort Collins, Colorado, who wants to know, do you think our self is more a function of where we're going or a function of where we have stopped? Uh, I don't know that you can stop. I don't think there is a stopping. Um, and one of the things that suicide, maybe that's a stopping. Yeah. <laughs> well, even, th even that we can, we'll, we can talk about death if you'd like, I, I'm, I'm really interested in that too. But um, one of the things I talk about, I think is most interesting about the self is that it functions as a time machine it allows a sense of self to exist prior to your physical existence. When you think about your ancestors or people that you think of as your lineage or your community prior to your existence, and that's meaningful to people, right? And you can project yourself into the future beyond your physical self. You can think about the communities that exist that were the can will outlive you and feel as if you will have some type of symbolic immortality with those communities. So the idea of self i don't think is um what's really really interesting about it it's not as time delimited as people think but what if you find out as friends of mine have recently that they have neanderthal in their genetic background or 
say a white guy in the South discovers that his grandparents, great-grandparents going back were slave owners and so forth. I mean, how do you suggest that those things ought to be internalized or processed? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, um, again, as you started out with, I'm, I'm, I, I, uh, I tend to avoid prescription. I, I like to think about possibilities. Um, you know, if you then feel connected to those histories, then you'll have to find a way to make them fit with your sense of who you are and who you've been and who you're going to become and how people will do that will vary. But I don't, I don't, I don't know that it, for me, I don't know that it would matter that much, but that's just me. Well, like you say, you're not <laughs> deciding to be prescriptive or uh, presenting your own self as uh, a paradigm here, but sometimes it's hard to avoid, especially I think about your background uh, coming from, when did you leave Mississippi? Oh, so we, I left Mississippi when I was a, a child. So I was like, I was five, but I spent a lot of time there after we left. So we went back, I spent most summers there and all the holidays. So I, I felt connected to the place. Um, and also I don't, I grew up in Chicago, but Chicago, at least among the black community is heavily populated by people from either Alabama or Mississippi. So when you're in Chicago, at least when I was growing up, there was a sense of deep connection to the South. Well, you had also the root of one of my iconic figures, Richard Wright, you know, who started in Mississippi and then wound up in Chicago and wrote Native Son, one of the great African-American or for that matter, American novels. Uh, the other thing I think about is one of your colleagues at Stanford, Abraham Verghese, who I just recently did an on-stage interview with, who's now got the number one bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list with his uh, most recent book. Um, he says geography is destiny. Mm. I, you know, I, I, I agree with that, but I would, I would amend it a bit to say social geography, and those two things overlap. But I, I do think that. And there's, you know, there's all kinds of social science suggest this true too. So you can look at things like zip codes and make predictions about people's life trajectory. Um, the people you're around, your community, I think that is destiny. I think that constructs who you are. What do we do with those people who are so outside of their community, loners and, I don't know, Ted Kaczynski or something? I mean, they're off the grid and they could care less about presumably social relationships. Misanthropes, you know. Hmm. I mean, as we said earlier, there's no way out. Ted Kaczynski cared. He just didn't care in a way that you found to be, or that most of us would find to be um, reasonable, right? Because if he didn't care, he wouldn't have engaged. And he just engaged in a way that was misanthropic, as you as you pointed out. I um, I think that if you do not have community, yourself will start to disintegrate. That's what I believe. This is why I think, and people obviously agree that. Um, Isolation um, is considered cruel and unusual, unusual as a punishment, right? So I think social true social isolation will eventually lead to the disintegration of self. Can't just sit out in Walden Pond and you know watch eat a woodchuck raw as Thoreau said he wanted to do that sort of thing. <laughs> I, you know, I think being human requires being around humans. So where does freedom fit in? and self? Um, you know, I, I make a distinction between the desire for freedom and the thing itself. And uh, I, I try to spend not too much time on the idea of freedom because, as I'm sure you know, it is a fraught um, concept. 
So the idea of we'll talk about it as free will is incredibly complex. And um, the conversations about that have become quite technical. So, and it all revolves around what do you mean by freedom? Like freedom is one of those words where it's like love, where everyone feels like they know what they're talking about. And it's not clear that anyone knows what they're talking about. I'll just give you a quick anecdote. I had the pleasure of and the privilege of interviewing the Nobel Prize winning novelist Isaac Bashevis Singer a number of years ago. And I asked him very solemnly, do you believe in free will? And he said, I have no choice. <laughs> uh, <because it> still <laughs> I love that answer. Yeah, I love that great? answer. So do I. Let's go to some more questions and comments from Minneapolis. James wants to know, in different social situations, high school reunion, pride parade, or a traffic stop, our self-talk is different. Are these different messages we send ourselves, different selves? Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I think, well, one, you're clearly a different self in those environments. So, and I think the high school reunion is a great example of one in which people can probably feel how they kind of revert back to some version of themselves from high school when they're in those environments. I, I, I use that as an example sometimes. But I had never thought about the idea of selves talking to different selves. And I love that idea. I'm going to think about it more, but what I would say is that each self represents a community. Whenever you say I, you really mean we. And so there's different communities in conversation there. That's what I would say. That's the amendment. I'll think more about it, but I really love that idea. But you know, kings used to say we, and they meant the whole kingdom. The mm -hmm. royal we, the regal we, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. those, those plurals could be a lot of confusion with they these days, but we can be pretty confusing too. Uh, here's Eric from Washington, D.C. He says, have you settled on a position regarding the topics of consciousness and self-awareness and how or if they apply to artificial intelligence? Is there a good dividing line? Thank you, and thanks for the question, Eric. Oh, so uh, um, I used to think a lot about consciousness in, in part because it's incredibly fascinating and is described often as the hard problem. Like we don't, we don't even know what the right questions to ask are at this still. I, um, I tend to lean toward, um, Cyril on this. So John Cyril has this, has this claim that there's something unique about, I, I think, I assume he, he still had this claim that about biology that's necessary for consciousness. I don't know that I can, honestly, I don't know that I can give you a strong defense, um, but I certainly don't know what consciousness is. If I did, I'd be writing a very different book in <laughs> a very different place uh, in life. Um, I do not think right now, I do not think AI is anywhere close. It's it's not close. Um, will that change? You know, it's hard to predict the future, but I think in the foreseeable future, no, is my my sense. I hear somebody saying from your lips to God's ears, uh, you know, in terms of it not being close to consciousness, because that does open up many Pandora's boxes. And here's Chris from Tempe again. Thanks, Chris, for the question. How does your appointment in graduate school of business complicate or not complicate the ways that you and your work are perceived in the liberal academic community? <laughs> um, you know, Here's my here's my what I say about being in a business school. I study human beings. I'm I'm fascinated by human beings moving through life and making sense of it. Turns out that human beings go to work, and so um, there's there's a reason that people who are in business need to understand human beings as well. 
in terms of your question, though, it's more pragmatic question. How does it affect how people perceive me? Well, they want me to talk about business, which is not the thing that I'm most interested in talking about sometimes, and therefore have to do a little bit of education about who I am, what my interests are, and a little bit of education about the Graduate School of Business. At, at Stanford, the Graduate School of Business, I would argue, does engage with business, but it's really a, a social science school. Like The people there really are interested in often basic questions that affect business, but pretty basic questions. Can you say something about social science as a discipline? Because there are some who give it short shrift. They say, you know, it's not hard science. It doesn't deserve the kind of veracity that is placed in, uh, or for that matter, the faith that's placed in hard science. Well, first, I would say I don't know about the faith that is placed in hard science. And second, what you know, I would say especially is... Especially after the pandemic. But, you know, a lot of people have faith in particularly the physical sciences. I mean, it's, um, you know, science is really a methodology to make sense of the world. And sometimes people lose sight of that. They they think it's something something else. It's it's a method to make sense of the world. It's a method like poetry is a method to make sense of the world from my perspective. I think it's powerful because it's provided um, insight that's led to very practical things that affect our day-to-day lives. Um, what I would say about the distinction between hard science and social science is that social science is harder. And because it's harder, it's messier. Like human beings, there is little that we know of in the universe that's more complex than human beings and human interactions. And what we can see from social science is such a um, tiny part of what it is to be human and, and our ability to capture that complexity is so limited that it's messy. And what I would say when I wrote this book, people always ask me, what should I do with this? And what I say is, if I told you that the earth was a round blob floating in a vacuum, you'd be like, that's incredible if you believed it was flat. I wouldn't have to tell you what to do with that. If I told you that there was a, a geological error that we hadn't discovered before, no one would ask me, what do I do with that? When I tell somebody something about themselves that might completely reshape how they think about their social lives. It's strange to me. They ask me what they should do with that. Um, and, and that's how I think about social science. It is an exploration of one of the most glorious, most interesting, more, most complex things that you will ever encounter in your life. Well, your passion comes through. And it's also leads us into a whole other cosmos in each individual, perhaps, or a whole other galaxy. Uh, our fearless leader, Alex, wants to know what you think are the key tenets of building a community. Oh, um, the number one tenet to build a community is a sense of commonality and flowing from that trust. So, um, you know, in the book, um, I, I always get his, I always confuse his name, but Benedict Arnold wrote this book about um, the construction of city-states, which you can think of as communities not city-states, rather, like nation-states, I'm sorry, nation-states, which you can think of as communities. And he basically makes the argument that printing press was the reason that nation-states started. And how, there's it's a complex argument, but the simplest version of it is when you have a newspaper and you know that thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are reading that same paper at the same time as you, that produces a community. And prior to the printing press, that sense of we are connected in this way that could not exist. And that allowed for the construction of a nation state. So underneath that, the most important thing is the sense that we 
are together. We are a people. The question is where that comes from. That's a that's a, a different, more complex question, but that sense of commonality, of shared experience, of existing in the same world together, that's what creates community. Well, nation states also have certainly gotten behind ideology, uh, particularly in recent history. And let's talk about the self in that context, because we've got this idea that America has been built on rugged individualism. You've addressed that in your writing, and maybe we can talk about that. But this has been a culture, at least, based on at least a notion or aspiration of individuality and individualism. And when you look at collectivist societies, the ideologies of Marxist-Leninism, for example, they're built on a completely opposite ideology. The self is subservient to the state. The state is all ascendant. I mean, so the argument goes. Um, how do you see that duality or that, how does it picture in your mind? And particularly in terms of its effect on the individuals. Yeah. Um, I think of individualism as a useful fiction or useful delusion. Um, I think the ideology of subsuming an individual self to the state is also a useful fiction. And when I say useful, useful for you know certain purposes. Like so the idea of individualism in the West is useful in terms of allowing us to structure our economy, for example. Our economy is built on the concept of free choice, individuals' free choice. I mean, but you you scratch the surface a little bit in the the, the delusion of that becomes apparent quite quickly. Um, but it's a useful way to think about how we exchange things and how markets are created and how we build and grow an economy. It's useful because it it produces an increase in, I don't, you know, it, it produces an increase in quality of life, let's say. Um, and there, you know, the ideology of communism, I think, is has been less effective historically. Um, so in, in both those cases, I still think people are generated by the collective, that people are beholden to the collective, that people in those communities do, in some sense, um, give themselves to the collective. The ideology that's created, those differ and those have consequences, um, but those are fictions. And I give you an example of what I mean by fiction. It's no different than the fiction of of money. Like it's useful. It's a fiction. It exists as a uh, it exists as a social construct because it provides value. And I think ideologies, in the case of national ideologies, are similar. What about the maybe ideology or the at least motivation in say a free enterprise or capitalist system to just acquire as much wealth as you possibly can or property? as much as you can. I mean, compare mm. that to something like North Korea. Uh, uh, it's an extreme example, but, you know, because it's a uh, almost a, a hermit kingdom, but it's a pretty wide disparity, to put it mildly. Wild, it's a wide, wide, and wild disparity. I think, so the idea of acquiring more as a, a signal, I think, a virtue that people don't talk about it that way now, but I think that that is underneath what it is that you feel more virtuous if you have more things. Um, I think that that has the benefit of creating the kind of economy that produces a lot of things. Not that there aren't costs associated with that, but you wouldn't, I wouldn't have, I mean, I don't, some people, some, you know, hundreds of years ago predicted that would be true. Um, 
but it didn't have to be the case, right? So that's just the consequence of, of that particular ideology, right? You could have imagined, let's have an ideology where everyone, what is produced is all owned by this, the community collectively, right? You could imagine that ideology. You might predict that it would produce a, a healthier community. And it just turns out that at least the way it's worked in practice, that has not been the, been the case. Maybe some um, indigenous tribes that operated that way, I think. I don't know if yeah, you can so speak there, about it ideologically, that. but that's how they operate it. Yeah. yeah, there's some there 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 have been communities that have operated more that way and, and maybe um more effectively. Um but their exchange was a little bit different in those societies as I understand them anyway. Um so there was community community held goods, but there was a different sort of the, the way exchange work was a little bit different. And what I would say is in the in more um in societies that had less in societies that don't have a lot of surplus, these things end up working out quite differently, right? So um, there's a sense in which the common good is innately tied to individual survival, right? And I don't, I don't, I, you know, like tightly tied to into survival. I don't know that that's where we are right now. Uh, forgive me. It's also when when I think about whether labeled or mislabeled primitive societies, I think about the power of taboo. I mean, we get back to conformity, but there's a lot of taboo that really proscribes or obviates the possibility of the kinds of things that we see afflicting our very free culture, or what is at least mm -hmm. thought to be our very free culture. Yeah, taboos are are really interesting. Like the strong cultural prescriptions, like you proscriptions rather, where you you cannot do these things. I, you know, it's um. I'd say we certainly have taboos now. They're just maybe they're just less clear to us than when we look at what we consider or what people described in some senses more primitive societies. But certainly there there are taboos now. Like cultures both proscribe and prescribe. So let's get back a little bit to a question that was sort of surfacing before about the role of technology in expanding or constraining the self. I mean, there's all this tension, as you've been suggesting, between structure and freedom. And so how does technology, maybe even AI, but we're just speculating there, but how's technology, as you see it, involved in all this or integral to this? Yeah, so I, the world changes when technology changes the way that human beings interact with each other because there's nothing as central to humanity as interacting with other human beings, the interaction among human beings. Um, I think, also, you know, Let's talk about the era just the, that we may be just now leaving of social media. Um, I think that it's limited the uh, potential evolution of self, and that we are told what music we'll like, what books we should like. We we are told what partners we're gonna prefer in ways that don't allow for the kind of serendipity that would, I think, allow for a, a broader, more expansive evolution of self. So that's kind of this algorithmic um, structures that people are, I think, have um, have assented to through their, you know, I don't know, for whatever reasons, because it's easy to like, it's, you listen to Spotify, or you go to Amazon, they give you predictions of what you like, and you like them because it's what you liked before, right? Not because it's something new and delightful, but because it reminds you of what you've already liked. Um, but again, so there are those nonconformists who fight against that kind of mechanization, aren't there? There, I, there are, and, I, I, and more power to them, right? Like, I, I, I like the people who want to flip through vinyl albums and browse bookstores, 
you know i don't maybe that's just like i love doing those things <laughs> uh, so that's the algorithm the other thing is the our digital footprints i think d- don't allow for forgetting and forgetting i think is integral to evolution and development and forgetting is integral to growth and i think there's a way in which we have um not adequately or in an effective way managed our ability to forget because forgetting also has cost but there is a way in which you want to manage your forgetting that allows for evolution and growth and i don't think that the current technological landscape has done that very well here's reed who says consider the suffering of citizens of ukraine how when reduced to desperation and base survival needs does one Maintain a sense of a moral center in oneself and the ability to contribute to a community. Um, that's a good question. I think yes. I talk about in the book um, meaning in life, and um, one thing I would say is in any circumstance, even those most dire, I think people have a need and desire for meaning in life. I, I think sometimes people think of that as a um, a concern of the privileged, right? Only the only privileged people who have all their other needs met can possibly have a concern about something as ephemeral as meaning. And I think that's just not true. You read Victor human- Frankel? I, 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 yes, I, okay, I Just for those I, who I, don't, I, aren't familiar with him, I mean, he's talking about the search for meaning in a concentration camp during, you know, the Nazi mm-hmm. rule. And uh, you can search for meaning under any conditions, really, in life. Any condition. Yeah. And I think, I think, and so when you, that question about Ukraine is really what you, what people need is to hold on to a sense of, of meaning. And in psychology, there's research on this, and there's three components that are necessary for meaning and the, the research suggests. So one is coherence. That is, you have to understand your place in the world. It has to seem coherent. You can't have, you can't have meaning in, in chaos. And so people need to construct a sense of coherence. And I think the self provides that. So I think you need to have a sense of self to understand where you stand in relation to what's going on around you, to the people you interact with. Um, and you could argue that that fighting for the health of their community, their national community, their nation state would suggest there's a sense of coherence. You, The second thing you need is purpose. When you get up in the morning, you have to have something to do. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that especially in situations as dire as that many people are in Ukraine, there's a sense of purpose. And then the final component that you need for a sense of meaning in life is significance. That is what you do has to matter more than just in this moment. It has to reverberate in some way into the future. When you see things like fighting for the nation state, fighting for the idea of Ukraine, what you're fighting for is something that you expect to move beyond you, to live beyond you. And so if people can hold on to those things, I think they will they will have a sense of, of meaning in life and, and probably um, it will provide a moral core. Another question for you, Brian. This is from Eric. He wants to know, does the speed and diversity of human interactions afforded by current technology make up for the brevity and bias of those interactions or does it just make overall quality worse as in a high rate of garbage? Uh, my immediate response is garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Garbage in, garbage out, right? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I don't, you know, I don't know how, I think though, I think every interaction, even fleeting ones affects you. 
I think that people, the problem with these kind of fleeting interactions is that people don't have any sense of responsibility for what their interaction, um, what it, what it does to other people. So I'm a firm believer that you should try to be as conscientious as possible in all your interactions, especially if you believe what I believe that all those interactions are affecting the people that you engage with in a, in a meaningful way, maybe small, but meaningful. I worry that what we have with um, technology now is the ability to have many, many fleeting interactions and have very little sense of responsibility for them. Well, I was struck by a story this morning, and people will be listening to this, of course, when the story is old and weathered, but the reality is that this is a story that got an immense amount of attention. Miranda Lambert, I think, is the name of a country singer who was giving a concert in Las Vegas, and there were some young people, fans of hers, in the audience taking selfies. And she got distressed by this, and she said, it pisses me off to see people doing this, you know, while I'm trying, you should be listening to my lyrics. And of course, she was assailed as being vain and egocentric, and at the same time, people said it was rude of those kids to take selfies of themselves. I mean, it's a minor kind of story, but it was given great play because it plays into so much of the ambivalence we have about technology, I think, and its relation to self. I think, yeah, I, I didn't hear that story, but I've heard versions of that from other artists. I went to a, a concert where <laughs> the artist started with, all right, everybody take out your phone, take photos now, and that's it. <laughs> we're done. We're done with photos, and now we're going we're gonna to have this experience together. I'm going to create this art, and we're going to engage with each other. Um, well, Larry David, who you know made a great name and fortune for himself with Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm, he used to be a stand-up comic. And if somebody was talking in the audience, he would stop what he was doing and say, I'm not going on with you talking in the audience while I'm trying to perform. And that would be you know, his expression of anger because his self, he felt, was invaded or assaulted or who the hell knows what, but he just didn't want any part of it. Yeah, you know, when you, I can, I, I can imagine, I understand that. Like if you're creating art, you're doing it to have an effect on the people in the audience, right? You, you're doing it to have an exchange with the people who are, you know, consuming that art and to have someone in the audience making it difficult for you to have that engagement with the, with your audience. I, I would, that pissed me off too. <laughs> <laughs> well, early on when people started bringing devices into the classroom, you're a professor, I'm a professor, you know, you'd see students looking at their device. I mean, they might've been looking at what the reading assignment was, but it used to kind of get my dander up. I thought, are they not paying attention to me? Are they texting? What are they doing? You know, we're in that world now. We're very much in that world now. You were, in fact, in reading your book, when you talk about going into a classroom, it's interesting. You go in, and what people see initially is a black man. They don't know necessarily initially that you're the professor of the class, and then suddenly things change. And I was struck by when you wrote about somebody we, I think, both are acquainted with, and a colleague of yours, Claude Steele, walking as a black man, walking in a white neighborhood and whistling Vivaldi, you know, sort of trying to change the whole nature of the perception and the effect and impact you're having on the other or the others, mm -hmm. whomever they may be. Yeah. Well, you know, now, now with the gray hair, it's a little bit easier for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think we're constantly trying to engage with people. Even this is a, like the 
the whistling Vivaldi. I don't, then Claude tells that story. I don't know if it was him whistling Vivaldi, but the story really just points to um, our desire to have people see us, I think. And knowing that they're seeing, and I'm, when I say that, I don't mean um, a desire to be on stage. I mean a desire to feel as if what they're reflecting back to you fits what you believe you are. Um, having what you experience as a positive engagement. And I think we're constantly doing that. And we don't realize we're doing it. We're doing it all the time. There's, There's so many people that want to be perceived as more than they are. I'm thinking about it, like George Santos, you know, is a classic <laughs> example of that. Yeah, want- you know, I, I agree. I mean, I think that there we're those examples highlight how this plays out, but I think it's it's easy to miss the mundane ways in which we're doing it. We're all doing it all the time. Well, you're right about a study that intrigued me. I wasn't familiar with, but a Chinese uh, Chinese women who are perceived as being much more mathematical. And by the way, you're pretty young to be having gray hair. I just want to get that in there. I think. <laughs> just have you even reached fifty yet? <laughs> I'm on my way. I'm not quite yeah, there well, yet. <laughs> you know, so you're, you're younger. This is gray matter. It doesn't have to do with gray hair necessarily. Uh, there's also um, that study of Asian women and mathematics and the perception. It actually changes when they're perceived as being Asian as opposed to when they're being perceived as being women, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in that study, it's the, um, a study done by Margaret Shi and some of her colleagues. I believe she's still at UCLA now in the business school, by the way. Um, she looked at Asian American women and she had them actually either report their ethnicity or report their gender and then gave them a math test. And it turns out that they perform a bit better when they think of their ethnicity, think of themselves as Asian than when they think of their gender. And that seems to be a reflection of the stereotypes associated with those different groups. So the way I read that is they were different selves in those different situations. They were as motivated to perform well, but the self that was taking the test was a different self. Well, there are different selves, as you point out in your book, all the time. I, I couldn't help thinking about Jean-Paul Sartre, who if somebody acts cowardly, and then they'd be branded as a coward almost ontologically in terms of their being. And then they find they feel so much shame or remorse that in a similar situation, let's say somebody's being assaulted, a stranger, and they act and they do something, courageously, then they're courageous. They've changed them, changed the self. The self is a completely different self. Mm-hmm. And you can do that with self. I mean, it's protean. Yeah. I think, yeah, the the degree of flexibility is is amazing. And it's, I mean, it comes going back to the question of choice and free will. It may be that the situation elicits or dictates what's necessary. And of course, there's some you that you bring to that situation. But um, it's amazing how how sensitive people are to the situations they find themselves in, and so to label someone a thing, right? They're they're a coward or they're courageous in some, you know, uh, uh, some unlimited way, some way that's about the core of their being seems um, maybe misguided. And maybe misguided to the degree that you want to almost rebel against what's misguiding you. I mean, that's where the self becomes potentially chameleon-like almost, or certainly changeable. I guess that's what I was getting to with Sartre. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it, it, I, you know, it's, um, it's certainly, it's certainly changeable. And I, um, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm grateful for that. Like, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> Keeps <laughs> life interesting, true. doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. 
Yeah, maybe the self and happiness. Um, that's so mercurial too. That's so changeable under different circumstances, situations, people. Uh, I've always been a little bit um, suspicious of, uh, even though I think the United States is the only country that guarantees the pursuit of happiness, the idea of happiness as a pursuit when it's so ephemeral and transitory to begin with by its very nature. No, I think happiness is overrated. I say that all the time and people think I'm crazy, but I think happiness is overrated. I mean, it's it's nice to have, but your your point is is well taken. It's a it's an ephemeral state, right? And and by nature, it must be right. You you can't live in a constant state of happiness. Although people somehow imagine this as a possibility, I just don't. I don't. I don't think that's possible. And therefore, it's, of course, you want moments of happiness in your life. But that's a, a different thing than saying you want to be happy as some sort of consistent state of being. Is that as much a myth as the uh, myth of rugged individualism, that idea of a kind of permanent happiness or a stasis of happiness? Yeah, I think so. You know, there's, there's the, you know, one way to point this out, because I think people sometimes are skeptical, but, you know, people quickly acclimate to their situations, right? So they, they imagine some state in which they would be happy forever, and they end up in that state, and it turns out not so much. You know, they're happy for a moment, and then, you know, they acclimate, and they then want more. Human beings want human beings want that's that is i think a a stable feature of human nature well we were talking about buddhism before one of the uh natures of studying buddhism and pursuing buddhism is to not want to get rid of those dukkhas those desires that you have and just that's the ultimate extinction that we were talking about of ego mm -hmm. of self right so and here's the thing that what buddhism is seeking is the the death of an individual's humanity in some ways. That sounds negative, but again, this is why people don't understand nirvana, right? No, it's, it's right the, on. Uh, yeah. The elimination of self. And that I agree. Like the eliminate once is a component of eliminating your humanity. Um and I think most people, one, are not seeking to eliminate their self. Um and two, even if they are, which I get the suffering that that implies, right? That's what Buddhism is trying to in some sense, that's the what it's focused on is eliminating suffering and they see this holding on these desires as the source of suffering um but to be human is also to suffer and buddhism does teach the importance of awareness of suffering reaching out to suffering again doing things that are selfless really mm -hmm. indeed indeed and it's uh i you know i i i feel like after writing this book i feel like i should spend more time studying buddhism <laughs> <laughs> well, or all all religions. That's one of the great things that Huxley taught us. The, the great religions, as much as they've caused internecine warfare and hatred and enmity and killings of all sorts of, of torture, uh, are all at least undergirded by this desire to say compassion and love of one's fellow human beings is what it's all about, which is selflessness, really, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, it's... Um accepting that yourself is uh, created in the interactions with other people, that it's not something that in in a way belongs to you, but is constructed in and exists in the community. And you in that way belong to the community. Why the you in quotes, by the way, in your subtitle? Because I think I, I want to highlight that, that there's a, you're an English professor. Language is a slippery, funny thing. Um, an attempt to convey 
incredibly complex concepts through symbolic words and sounds. It's a funny thing. And some of what I'm, I'm trying to explain, I think is hard to capture in language because I, as we had this conversation, we're constantly talking about the you as an agent. And part of what I want to do is say like that, that probably is not what you think it is. And I don't have a good way of, of communicating that. And so the you in quotes is just meant to recognize that if you accept what I'm saying, that you is probably not what you imagine it to be. Well, it's also, it gets back to the difference in cultures. You know, if you say in Spanish, tu or usted, you're, you're giving a whole different social relationship or connection, which we don't have in English. It's just this big you. you know, that's it. Mm-hmm. Another question from Chris, who wants to know, have you thought about or done research on how your conception of self fits or not the ways that neurodiverse individuals think about and act on their selves? Um, no, I haven't. And um, I, I think about it now and then, but neurodiversity is a very big, big category, right? So Huge, it, it, yeah. it captures it captures so many different things. So it's hard for me to say how that category of people um, engage with their sense of self. I think um, there's some reason to believe that some of the ways in which people diverge from the the the, the norm um, have to do with how they construct the self or how the self is constructed in distinction from the surrounding world or others. But I don't, I don't, I haven't spent much time yet looking into that. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't want to go too far, but I do think that as you consider how a self is constructed, there are obviously variations, right? And some further from what people think of as some for, further from the norm than others. And some really have almost no regard for social relationships. Uh, I mean, I don't mean that in any critical way. It's just mm-hmm. the, the the nature of their neurodiversity. Right? Yeah, and also often those people have a hard time understanding other people too, right? So it's not just that they have no interest in the relationships. That when you don't have interest in relationships, it's hard then to make sense of the social world. Thank you for the question from Chris, and thank you to Travis for this question. He Travis is in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He wants to know what you think of personality tests. <laughs> I am. Um, you know, this is. I won't go too far on this. I, I'm. I'm not really a, a big fan of personality tests. Um, I think people love to categorize themselves. Again, people want to have a sense of who they are, and they're looking for something that I think is. Um, well, I think they were looking in the wrong place, honestly. Um, I some some maybe many personality tests, as far as I can tell, are horoscopes. Um, <laughs> and then when you is that to say there's not something stable in people? Not necessarily. Like I, I've had this conversation quite a bit where I say, but there are gene- there are genes, and and people have temperaments, and I'm saying sure. I don't. I don't deny the existence of the physical self. I don't deny the existence of differences in, you know, hormones or neural pathways. But when we talk about the self, is that really what we're talking about, or are we talking about the social meaning attached to those things? And once we're talking about the social meaning attached to those things, that exists in relationships. And how do you account for antisocial behavior, or do you? Where does that um, fit in? I mean, like what we were saying before about narcissists, that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are ways in which basic human needs 
go awry. And I think the construction of self happens in relationships. So human beings need interactions and how they manage that need obviously can vary and they can vary in ways sometimes that are um, dysfunctional. So I don't, I, I'm one and not, I, I, don't, I don't tend to be that interested in what I would think of as dysfunctional ways that these things play out, but I don't deny that they exist. I just don't spend, I don't, I don't really think that hard about how to catalog the ways in which these things go wrong. I'm, I'm more interested in the, the basic need than how it, how people <laughs> try to meet those needs and, and fail or dysfunctional responses to those needs. But you do think a lot and give a good deal of attention to the idea of construction of self. You just use that phrasing again. Um, mm -hmm. So it gets into how much we actually believe that we can construct a self. Can we be the engineers? And I mean, it's not even free will. It's just constructing a self mm -hmm. that we put out there to the world or to ourselves. Yeah, you know, I, when I think about this thing about parents, so I, I know you have children. And like as a as a parent, I, I don't. But as a parent, I, I I see people taking on immense responsibility for the person they create. Right? They don't. They don't often. They don't. They don't deny that their child has a personality, or there are ways in which um, there's going to be some stability in how that person engages with the world. But I still think most parents feel a strong sense of responsibility. Or shaping their children into reasonable, responsible, well-functioning, successful adults. All I'm saying is, like, whenever we interact with someone, we have a bit of that responsibility. And yet, you and have parents idea. who are totally irresponsible and neglectful. And <laughs> sure, there are people who are there are people who are terrible, par terrible parents, which is obviously a a, a shame and a, a, a very serious tragedy. But the idea, but what I'd point to is the idea that it's, that human beings believe that they can shape selves, exists in the belief that parenting matters to some extent. Yeah, one hopes that more human beings will feel that way. Uh, it's certainly within our institutions, within our culture, uh, and cultures throughout the world, the value of children and so forth. Do you think that children become less valuable somehow in light of uh, things like climate change or uh, nuclear weapons or, you know, the idea of dystopia with AI or, I mean, you know, there are a lot of people now who say, I don't want to have children. You know, it's, uh, I don't like what's happening with the planet. Yeah, I, I, I completely understand that. And I would say that that is a, a, a kind of giving up and I, there's no judgment. I don't mean that in any way as I truly don't as a judgment. It's just a sense of, I don't see meaning because I don't see future. I don't see a future. And I don't, you know, that's a not a crazy response, an unreasonable response to the state. You still see meaning, even if there's no future. No, no, I think you don't see meaning without future. Like you, you, in some sense, you're saying there is, there are no reverberations because there will be no future. I think in that place, you, in some sense, I think it's a um, a denial of meaning. Yeah, well said. I think on that rather slightly more note, we're going to probably bring things to a close. Let me thank you, Brian, for a very engaging and stimulating discussion and conversation. And thanks to all you who were with us for this week's live interview and to all who will be hearing this episode on Apple or Spotify podcasts or on our website at graymatter.show. And a reminder that you're invited to join our growing 
community of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny by going to graymatter.show, and that's gray with an E. My thanks to the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny great team of Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Jeff, and to this episode's special guest, Brian Lowry. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.